Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> you know, there was some out there who said, forget partying like a rock star. Party with the Jets and find out what's going on. I'll tell you, some of the parties that we've had are wonderful. Lord, the fun we've had. Hey, how's everybody doing? Fantasy Jester Show. I'm he, the Fantasy Jester. Coming to you live tonight, Leesburg, Florida. Absolutely Beautiful night, little chill, little chill, can't complain as compared to what's going on throughout the rest of the U.S. and uh, those people are struggling through the snowstorms and everything, prayers with them, hope everybody stays safe, curl up, sit back, get your, get your favorite drink, put your feet up, two hours of in case you missed it, that's right, you know, we're on not just throughout the U.S., but in 19 countries, uh, listen, and there's a good reason. And tonight, we're going to give you some of those reasons why, right here, brought to you by FantasyJesterSports.com. Blog Talk Radio bringing you those crystal clear sounds and a whole host of other people bringing you this great show Including our intro, you know, that is the live version where uh, we've just received the studio version. Uh, I wanted to change it out so it sounds a little cleaner. Uh, I, I like the live version. Don't get me wrong. Big engine. Going to be, we're going to give the dates in Daytona for bike week, where they're going to be later on in the show. But big engine giving you the sound. Folks, listen, it's real simple. We go ahead, we bring you the stats, we bring you the humor, we bring you a little bit more. And tonight, no different. No different. Find out what has made us so popular so that you can share it with your friends and say, hey, listen, this guy's more than the blue beard. This is what he brings. So tonight, you know, and it's not just about sports. And for those of you who are new tuning in, let's explain a little bit of what goes on. It's sports, it's stats, it's humor. It's good times, a lot of good insider information, depending on who we have on the show and whatnot. And it's also all built around using this platform to help the true innocent in this world, the children out there, and all different charity work that we like to do. Using this platform, it allows us to go ahead and reach as many children as we can. Thank you for all the fans who helped make that possible. And because of all you great fans out here, it is my pleasure to bring you a show like tonight where we go ahead and take some of the snippets. Uh, and some of it's not even snippets. Some of it's uh, uh, we give you the full interview. It's go 
gonna be great two hours going ahead, breaking it down. Some of the great interviews. Listen, Luke Akins. If you haven't seen Luke Akins, stretch the human imagination of what is possible. After the show, go check out the video. Heaven sent. 25,000 feet out of the air, no parachute. Luke Akins is going to be on the show. Listen to what he had to say, even about his own feet. Ryan Walton, another one of those guys, stretching the imagination of what's possible. Dives with sharks, no cage. We had him on the show. Miami Dolphins, Pro Bowl defensive end Jeff Cross, going to tell us who is tied naked to goalpost. We're going to get into that. We're going to probably start the show off with that. Cleveland Indians radio announcer Jim Rosenhouse, who had a water balloon fight with Terry Francona. And what was the payback? WWE, for you fans out there that are wrestling fans, the legend Larry Zbysko. And if we say unfiltered, that's probably being polite as he shoots on everybody that's moving practically. And uh, some of what he had to say about Lex Luger and Sting, some of the funniest shit I have ever heard. And uh, stay tuned. We're going to be playing that interview. Three-time Stanley Cup champion Ken Danico stopped by the show. We're going to replay his picks for this year's Stanley Cup for you, just in case you missed that. That and a whole bunch more as we go through this two-hour special. But, folks, uh, first off, if you notice, I'm missing somebody. JT. What's up, JT? And and Joe Jr. JT and Joe Jr., where are y'all at? Why are y'all not here right now? Why are y'all not supporting the Jags right now? They should be here right here with my Jags. Practice right now. (laughs) (laughs) They missed it. That's right. That's Miles Jack of the Jacksonville Jaguars, friend of the show. Asking, where's JT and Joe Jr.? Well, Joe Jr.'s on permanent, who knows where, vacation. We don't know, sucking down a corona somewhere. JT is with Tate Dello over in Arizona doing their 10 games in seven days. Next week, tune in. We're going to have that next week, along with what I'm in the middle of this weekend. What's that turning into? I've got some great stories on that. Can't wait to get that to you. But right now, let's kick off some of the some of the funny, funny stuff. Let's go right to Jeff Cross talking about a player taped to a goalpost. It had to be around ninety ninety one when the defensive lineman um, concocted the story um, about being abducted. No, uh, Alfred Oglesby was his one. name. Okay. Oh my goodness. Go ahead. I remember the player. Okay, Alfred Oglesby was, uh, make a long story short, he had uh, went out to, this was when the training camp was still over in North Miami. And a couple blocks blocks from the training camp was a little hole-in-the-wall gentleman's establishment, let's call it. Correct. So Oglesby, you know, he sat in there late one night and, and, and make you know he's probably there till probably two in the morning, and he woke up late. You know, by the time he <laughs> you know by the time he it was probably eleven o'clock. And how how each meeting that you meet, each meeting that you miss, um, mm-hmm. you're fined separately for that. So he, he was probably looking at about seven or eight thousand dollar fine. <laughs> And yeah, he he was looking about seven or eight, you know, with a lot of money back in those days. Hoping for missing yeah, a couple hours. Of, worth it. 
Right. So rather than just and, – and, you know, Albert Ogilvy was a top draft choice. So yes. rather than just pay his fine and be done with it, he concocts, he concocts the story that that he um, pulled up he he pulled up at a, on his way home. He pulled up at a stoplight, and and next thing you know, someone's point, pointing a gun into his head, and they drive him out in the middle of Everglades, and they make him walk home. No. And no. oh yeah, you can you can I'm sure you can still find this on Google. Okay. And so he uh, now you know that the 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 Dolphins have always had a close they they, they the Dolphins always have a close relationship with law enforcement. There's there's yeah. you know. We'd always have, you know, the local FBI's out guys out watching practice in the whole nine yards. So obviously, it didn't take long for the FBI to be out looking for him. <laughs> so finally, he, so 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 this, you know, everyone's worried about him. It's all over the news. And finally, breaking news, you know, later in the day, I want to say by five six o'clock, you know, Oglesby, you know, they they found him. Well, of course, they brought him in and interrogated him and. <laughs> ripped this story apart in about 15 minutes. And oh, so, it, right, exactly. So you can imagine how that would play out in the locker room. That I, one, I, I mean, I, my guess is it lasted a long time. It it lasted as long as he was in a Dolphin uniform. <laughs> and on top of that, and on top of that, um, a bunch of the guys, uh, just kind of in retribution for 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 putting the team through that. Right. Uh, a bunch of guys, a bunch of guys, uh, they uh, they 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 put on helmets, you know, so he couldn't fight back. And they go drag him out of the shower one day, and they drag him out to the uh, yeah, they drag him they drag him out to the practice field, butt naked, and they <laughs> and they tie him and they tie him to the goalpost. They tied him. To, no, no, no. It gets it gets worse. They tied him to were the goalpost. Were you in on this or no? Yes, you. It's pretty much. It was. It's pretty much all of us linemen. <laughs> and and we tie him to the goalpost. You know, with the white tape that you tape your ankles with. We tie him to the goalpost. Okay. A bunch of guys take the uh, the uh, the the jail. You know, the the jail that you put on. You know, the warming. The right. I forget what they call it. You know, the, the stuff that burns if you put okay. it on when you're wet. Okay. <laughs> exactly. They they rub his lower his, his lower body all over with that stuff. Oh hell no! And then they and, and they and they douse him with powder. <laughs> oh, and, hell and, no. and left him out there for the, the training staff or whoever to come get him. Oh Lord, have mercy! Now, I'm, all right, I'm, I'm almost certain you can still Google all this. Um, how did the coaching staff handle that? Did they mind that? Uh, <laughs> Did they mind that the team took care of it? <laughs> I, 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 I guess you can say his, his teammates took matters into their own hands. <laughs> That's. Very I don't good. think. I don't think. I don't think word of this ever really got back to Shula, nor did they care. Or, um, but nothing. That, that is. That is just one of the better times, and it goes on from there, folks. That's really talking to him is is always been he's been on the show he's a friend of the show been on a couple of times and every time he comes back to something else that's just 
the good times, you know, and that's pretty much where we want to bring everything, whether it's fantasyjestersports.com. I don't know if I've mentioned that. Maybe I have, and maybe I'll mention it again later on, more than likely, folks. Uh, We like to make sure that sports is covered, not from the negative and the sensationalism, uh, but more from the funnier, the human side, the uplifting side, uh, different you know, just something a little refreshing, if you will. And Jeff definitely helps us bring that every time he's on. Going ahead, and we're going to bring Jeff on later on. I've got another interview uh, because what I've done is I've pulled the what was the ones that were most reacted to, the people that really liked the show. And Jeff came up twice. And the other time is talking about, and this was during this past season, it was in the middle of the season, and uh, we talked about Ryan Tannehill. This was, uh, I'm sorry, prior to this past season. Uh, it's an older show. And, but we did talk about Tannehill. We talked about the Dolphins, the state of the Dolphins in general. But what he had to say about Tannehill was interesting because I've noticed the talk, and it's really you guys in Miami, Miami fans, you're, you're pretty rabid fans. I thought the New York, you know, coming from New Jersey and seeing the New York fan base and how they are, you know, guys, Miami, you guys are you guys are pretty good. I, I love the passion there, and it is a clear cut. You either like Tannehill or you do not. Jeff Cross gives a couple words on it, and it's something to listen to. So uh, I'll be playing that one. Now, we're going to go ahead. Again, we've got a bunch of different sports I want to cover. One of the big things, though, we recently had Ken Danico, three-time Stanley Cup champion, on talking about his predictions, hockey playoffs. You know, there is uh, those few of us out there that really do enjoy hockey. And, uh, you know, Dano does his Super Bowl picks, and here is what he had to say. Who's your favorite here at the halfway point that you feel really has the core and the uh, consistency to go ahead and uh, pull this off this year? Well, heck, I'm an underdog, so why not the shock of the hockey world right now, the Vegas Knights? (laughs) They don't seem to lose. (laughs) They outshoot their opponents. They're relentless, so who knows? Uh, but all kidding aside, I know it's going to be difficult, but I, boy, have they been uh, fun to watch and been a team that it's remarkable what they've been able to do in their first year. And a lot of guys playing with a chip on their shoulder. They're well-balanced. They're good in goal. They're, they've been so much fun. Playoffs is a different animal. We will see, but I certainly don't think any team's going to enjoy and they're definitely going to make the playoffs. I don't think there's going to be many teams that want to play Vegas in the first round because in a seven-game series, just the style they play and the attacking style and in your face 24-7 uh, every game, it seems they could be a difficult team. But if you're, if you're looking at a team that's, you know, well-balanced and if they stay healthy, they're missing Hedman right now. It's Tampa Bay Lightning. They look like a team that's going to be real tough to beat, but that's what's so great about our game is – in the National Hockey League, it's so competitively balanced. Come playoff time, there's upsets, there's different teams. That's what gives fans of who, no matter what team you root for, uh, hope that just get in the playoffs and anything can happen. And, and 
that certainly rings true in the National Hockey League. There's no question in my mind. Seven-game series is a different animal, and, and sometimes you get a team's number, even a team that's had a better regular season than you. So it should be a lot of fun with the Tampa Bay Lightning uh, from my standpoint. And like I said, Vegas Knights are a dark, dark horse, but why not continue this miracle run? Uh, but there's so many good teams. There's a handful you can look around the National Hockey League and, and certainly believe that uh, they could have a chance. But one that stands out, obviously, for me right now is Tampa. Yeah, and since that time they've gone ahead, they've added to the team, and uh, it really looks like Tampa's one of those teams. I've gone ahead said, keep an eye on Dallas. Dallas has a strong team out there, and uh, that was one of my kind of, if you will, sleeper picks. I don't know how they're a sleeper pick, but uh, not a lot of people looking at Dallas, and I happen to like that team a lot. Going ahead, moving along, you know, getting back to some of the ha-has, the he-he's of the show, and also talking about baseball as we're getting closer to that time of year. Spring training has started. I mentioned, I alluded to earlier, Tate and JT are out in Arizona doing 10 days, uh, 10 games and seven days out there. I'm in the middle of everything Yankees for you Yankee fans. You've got some good stuff already. It's going to be a great show next week. Baseball fans, make sure you tune in to a very heavy baseball show uh, next week. Right now, though, we're going to go ahead. Cleveland Indians radio announcer Jim Rosenhouse, good friend of the show, been on a couple of times. This one talking about Tito Francona. You mentioned Tito and, and what makes him um, fun to be around. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spring training, the Indians, their their ballpark, they share with the Reds. And then where the teams work out and have their clubhouses and it, it, their complexes are about, the Indians is about a quarter mile away from the ballpark. So on a game day, the the coaches and the manager, they'll, they'll take some golf carts over to the ballparks. And a lot of times the, the GM and some other front office staffers, they'll walk over because you know, it's always nice in Arizona in the spring. Well, last year, these guys would be walking back after the game. You're talking about Chris Antonetti, Mike Chernoff. I mean, these guys are the GM, the assistant GM, you know, high-level guys. And Tito and the coaches would be riding back in their golf carts, and they would have water balloons with them, and they would pelt Chris Antonetti and Mike Chernoff with water balloons. I mean, come on, you're nailing your boss? That's what you want out of your manager. Yeah. They were doing it every day until <laughs> one, one day they're driving back and they don't see the guys walking. And they thought, well, maybe they're having a meeting that ran long back at the ballpark. Well, sure enough, they had gone back early and gotten everyone on the front office staff, clubhouse guys, any kids from the front office staff, and they basically <laughs> were waiting for them, like off the second-story roof, for where they would drive the golf carts oh. back into the clubhouse. They were waiting for them, and it was, I mean, they just pelted them and got them back in one fell swoop. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's the stuff that it just, there's all kinds of little things that things lose. I mean, his first year here, he's doing the Harlem Shuffle uh, for a video, and you're like, my goodness, what is this guy doing? He's the manager of the ball club, but... He's having fun. He's keeping it loose. The game is too – the best way to play this game is relaxed. And there's too many games to get too worked up over one and get 
you know, just playing it tight. You can't do it. And, and he's a master at that. So that's where the funny stuff comes in. And again, there's, there's just too many to, to remember and name and that kind of thing. But there's that's, an example. That's for you great. That. Thanks. I appreciate it. That is, that is just baseball gold right there for, out of Terry. Uh, being able to be that loose around your boss, around your team, showing that you're ready to have a good time, do your work, but, you know, just keep everything loose, keep it, you know, running free and easy. Uh, and Jim giving a great story. Jim always gives uh, fantastic little tidbits, either, you know, players to look at, some of the insider stuff, and obviously uh, something that's funny. But looking forward to over the next month or two, Jim is going to come on. He's kind of tied up right now with everything, getting the season underway, and we, uh, we've we reached out to him. Matter of fact, the guys, uh, I'm pretty sure Tate and JT are having dinner with him uh, tomorrow. So uh, we'll know more next week as far as uh, when Jim will be on, giving us another uh, fantastic, fantastic nugget from the Cleveland Indians. Moving along, that's what we do. You see, there's no JT here. There's no JT here. I'm running absolutely wild. But, you know, here's what's great about no JT here is that later on he'll listen to this show. And there's not much I can do. Like, I can taunt him right now. And he can't say anything back on air. Nothing, nothing. Like, I can go, Yankees win! Ah, Yankees win! And I don't have to hear a thing. Watch. Watch. Yankees win! Ah, Yankees win! Nothing. He can't say a thing. You know, and so that you all know, so that you all know, I'm letting you in on this one. Okay. Right now, at this point, whenever he does listen to the playback, okay. Right now, he's going nuts. He's going nuts that he can't say anything. And I will guarantee he'll say something about it the next show. He, he he won't be able to let this go. Understand, he will likely listen to this tomorrow morning in his hotel room before they go to the next game, okay? That's pretty much how this is going to play out. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to be heading out to Tampa to go see the Yankees again, and I'm going to get a text. I'll know when this hit. So, one more time, if, please just bear with me. Yankees win! Ah, Yankees win! <laughs> Sorry, I had to have my own little fun there. Let's get back. Before we, we've got some heavy hitters coming in as far as some really interesting. Ryan Walton, Luke Aiken. Luke Aiken, heaven sent, I alluded to that. Ryan Walton, diving with sharks, no cage. Stretching the imagination of humanity, but also, in Ryan's case, bringing conservation tips to it. Absolutely beautiful. And then don't forget, still to come. I don't think it matters if you're a wrestling fan. I don't think this, I think this interview goes past that. You don't have to know the people involved to know a funny story when you hear it. That's going to be Larry Zabisco. We'll be playing that one in a little bit. But first, Jeff Cross had a couple of interesting things to say about the state of the Miami Dolphins when we had him on the show, and also some very interesting words at the end about 
Ryan Tannehill and how he feels about them. So for those of you who are listening, the next 24 minutes will be Mr. Cross giving a professional's opinion regarding his own team. It is fantastic. Enjoy. You know, the Miami Dolphins seem to be still rotating linemen, offensive linemen, in and out. When you saw that, when you were facing a team that was uh, rotating linemen in and out, uh, did you notice that? Do, is that something that you could see that they were having continuity issues or, or, or just communication issues on the line? Were you able to take advantage of something like that? It was um, – it's almost, it's almost inconceivable to me. Um, my entire year in, it, it, in professional football in the Dolphins, um, we probably had as steady an offensive line um, as anyone in, through my period of uh, through my uh, time with the Dolphins. And I'll tell you that that from the day that Richmond Webb and Keith Sims first put on a uniform, they never came out of any game. And that's that's the way it is for a lot of offensive linemen. Certainly when I played it, and I'm I'm guessing the rotation for the Miami Dolphins has more to do with 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 finding really just guys that that you know some of the, some of the offensive line and, and this I understand and this is and and, and this this I understand and, and this seems plausible. The Dolphins have some guys that have played multiple positions. So trying to find where a particular player's best fit is, I believe, is what the Dolphins are trying to do. You know, you got you got you know some guys that are playing guard and tackle, and although they line up just a foot or two from one another, it's an entirely different position. Mike Pouncey being out created even more problems for him. So it's understandable that they're just that that, that 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 some of these guys are having to learn on the go, and it's a it's a given that it from my perspective it looks like we've played you know a pretty tough schedule, and and it's it, it's a tough position for 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 learning offensive linemen to be in when you're playing at the Patriots when you're playing um, when you know when you're playing at Seattle, <laughs> uh, so. Mm-hmm. It, it, right. it, 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 it's tough, but that's the only conceivable reason for, in my mind, that you, that you would be rotating um, your offensive line. You, normally, uh, your offensive linemen don't come out of a game unless you're up 50 points. I mean, it just it, that's just the way it is. Your offensive linemen really come out of the game. JT? You know, Jeff, yeah, Jeff yeah. you know, when I watch, I watch the NFL these days, and it just seems like when you play defensive end, you guys were all around defensive ends. You could play the run well. You could play the pass well. Today, it just seems like your defensive ends are pass rush specialists. They made the point during the Dolphin game yesterday that, you know, Wake and Williams and these guys, they don't play the run well. They just want to pass rush. What do you attest that to? It's, 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 a, it's, um, it's a true statement. Um, it, it, when, I, when I played, <laughs> this is a conversation – that I have often with 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 defensive ends and tight ends when I played. When I played, we we had a much greater um, we had a much greater responsibility in the run game. 
uh, often we they line the defensive end up over the tight end. Uh, if it was a good tight end, um, one of the better tight ends in the league, just so he couldn't have an easy release and get up into the scene fast. We hit mm-hmm. him. It took us, you know, it, it took us uh, a step out of our pass rush, but that's just the way you played. It is absolutely true that defensive ends today are really, many of them are linebacker hybrids. They're not very big, um, and they play to get up field. Um, they play to get up field and, and rush the passer. Uh, many defensive tackles are more run stoppers, so more of a responsibility for the, you know, there was a time when, when, when inside, when interior linemen got 15 sacks a, a season. Um, I, I think Keith Millard one year uh, had almost had almost like 20. But today, you let your big tackles play the run, and more of the responsibility for the pass rush falls on their linebackers and the defensive ends. It is right. it, it is true that the defensive ends today they're smaller, they're they're smaller, and they really don't have uh, quite as much run responsibility. But I don't see that as a Dolphins problem. I see that I see it as a Dolphins man. We we're not we're not getting pressure on the passer. Um, everyone I know who who follows the Dolphins, we're, we're in shock. Um, mm-hmm. uh, as this team was being put together, I'd have told you we're a top ten team. Um, we're bad. We're bad everywhere. We're uh, speaking on defense. We're, we're 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 bad everywhere. We're we can't rush the passer. We we we. I mean we. I mean we we've given up uh, two hundred yards uh, rushing in, in in a few games. Um, we can't seem to cover, especially running backs. I would have told you that our defensive line was one of the best in the league. Right, um, we can't stop the run. We we can't get pressure on the passer. Um, we can't cover tight ends. Uh, we can't come up with big plays on the offensive side of the ball. We 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 can't do a job of protecting the passer. Uh, Tannehill is playing at a very low level. Um, he can't seem to get rid of the football, and and he's not accurate enough. There is only one position that it looks like we are playing pretty decent ball, and that's at receiver. We we we're, right now we're we're just, we're bad across the board, and. And when I when I when I you know I walk I watch the Dolphin games with a lot of former players and we're all in shock. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what? Okay, go ahead. I wanted to ask you this, Jeff, because uh, uh, you you mentioned sitting with former players, okay? And this is the one thing that I don't understand. I wanted to ask you about again talking about continuity because. I don't feel that you can have a consistent offense first until you get the line down. Once the line is consistent, then you can worry about, you know, what you're getting out of the other positions, whether it is quarterback or running back. But with that said, I mean, am I wrong in saying that they need to, if it's not going to be Arian Foster carrying the rock, they need to settle upon one running back and let him get into a rhythm Am, am I wrong with that? Do you feel that, and do your friends feel that? I don't feel that that's the dog. I, I, 
I do agree with that philosophy because a lot of the great running backs tell you that. Um, I heard Herschel Walker um, and Bo Jackson say this fairly recently, and 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 talking about great running backs, you you, you need you can't you can't be worried about great running backs getting running backs certain running backs getting the ball too much. They need the more they get the ball, they'll play themselves into shape. We'll get a better feel for the game. While I do believe that, I don't see it as a Dolphins problem. I see the Dolphins just trying to find some guys that can seem to play at a level where you can win some games in the National Football League. Um, I, I, you know what I'm saying? I, our objectives right now, I, I believe if you look at our head coach, his objectives have changed. We're not trying to beat – we're no longer trying to beat the Patriots. We're just we're just trying to you – know, on offense, we're just trying to score some freaking points. So uh, we're 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 in call it desperation mode, um, just trying to see which guys can get in there and 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 and, and, and go a couple games and and, and and seem like they're playing at a at a pretty decent level um, where you know where you can beat some good teams. I I, I I unfortunately when you're that's that's where the Dolphins are right now and and I don't think that I certainly didn't and I don't know anyone who follows the Dolphins that would have thought that that you know this early in the season this is where we would be but in my mind that's what it looks like to me we're just looking for some guys that anybody that looks like look like they can play at a high level and um and we're seeing very little of it um, I don't think we 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 have much of it outside of receiver. Okay. Let me ask JT? you this, Jeff. In your week of preparation, so you prepare for a game, you watch film on the quarterback that you're going against the coming week, and you see the quarterback has a fumbling problem, such as Tannehill has over his career. To be honest, does that change your mindset as a lineman to say, "Hey, I might go for the strip as opposed to the sack." Or, or is that something that doesn't enter your mind? I will generally say it doesn't, but clearly certain certain pass rushers, um, especially the the fast guys coming off the end, um, where a lot of your 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 rush is coming around the end, where the quarterback and if you do get there, the quarterback doesn't see you. You know, Derek Thomas was very good at this. Jason Taylor was very good at this. Um, those kind of rushes, and obviously guys like uh, Demarcus Ware and Von Miller, those guys are good at this because a lot of your rush is going to be the speed around the end, where the quarterback just doesn't see it coming, and you've got a chance to to, to make some really big plays. Um, when I look at the Dolphins, I I just look at a team that um, even the good quarterbacks have struggle if they can't get comfortable in the pocket. If they can't get into a rhythm, and, and we've only played one game in my mind where Tannehill was able to get himself uh, in a rhythm and really start making some good throws and, and, and us seem to be clicking um, as an offense, and that was in the Patriot game. Probably late, late second quarter through, through the rest of the game, um, I thought that was as good as – that certainly was as good as the Dolphins had looked on offense 
not just this season, but it is, it's probably the best that we have looked on offense in quite some time, those those few quarters. Other than that, it has been it is it has been just awful. Just awful. Across the board. And and, and also with with that said, the more the more drive you keep alive, the more time you feel the more time you can gain for yourself on the field simply we'll, we'll work some of these problems out. Um, and I think that, that that's that was the case in the in the Patriot game where, um, you know, defense came up with a couple good stops and allowed our offense more, more um, you know, more possessions. And, and ultimately, Tannehill was able to kind of find his rhythm. And on the opposite, what got us back in the Patriot game is, is you know, defense stiffened up and got, we had a couple of nice three and outs, and it actually got Garoppolo out of his rhythm. So okay, I think that right. really, you know, it's one possession at a time. The Dolphins have just, you know, the defense have got to come up with some stops and simply give our offense. You know, they talk about this in basketball a lot. You know, you need quality possessions. You need, you know, you need to, you know, when you create turnovers, you get more possessions and you get more shots. And sometimes your shooters, no matter what type, sometimes your shooters just need to shoot their way into some rhythm. And I, I feel um, that's where our passing game is. We just we got to have more possessions, especially more possessions when when we're not behind and scrambling. So uh, we're just playing losing football. Yeah, and now getting to the whole because this was uh, a hot hotbed topic uh, just a week ago on the show, Jeff. The question I really I really wanted to ask you, the number one question, because it's been the RT17 debate on the show, and on Facebook and Twitter, it's really gotten heated. And I'm, I, I'm from this, and so that you understand, my position on Tannehill is I don't know yet. I don't know yet. I think some unrealistic expectations were unfairly put on him because he was chosen in the first round when he shouldn't have been personally. Okay. Um, but the thing is this, he has not had the same system year after year after year. This is the, and now he's finally in a system that everybody feels Adam Gase is a genius, this, that, the other, give him time in Gase's system. Give him a consistent offensive line, give him a running game, and then let's judge whether or not he's good enough. I can't call it yet. Some people, a lot of Miami Dolphin fans are are dead sure this is not the guy for the team. You've watched football. You have played football. You have played with the greats. You know what is competent. You know what isn't competent. Is Ryan Tannehill the quarterback for your Miami Dolphins? Right now, here's how I feel. All of that is true. We have some young quarterbacks that are playing well, but from what I see, you know, there's a certain level of support they're getting. Um, The bottom line is that you're not going to be able, and, and, and the Broncos showed this, you're not going to be able to, to 
not every team is ever going to be able to have a great quarterback. So you better try to figure out ways to win without one. And the Broncos showed us that last year. Peyton Manning was a 32nd, and a lot of people still don't realize this. The Broncos were the uh, – Peyton Manning was a 32nd-ranked quarterback in the National Football League a year ago. Mm-hmm. So you run the ball, you play good defense, you're going to – you know, you're going to keep your quarterback in situations where where he can where, – where we're throwing for 200 yards and being – 15 to 25, can win can, you know, a lot of games when you're, when you're running the ball and playing good defense. Here's, where, here's what I feel about Tannehill. Even beside all of that, he is not playing at a high level. He is not, he is not, he is not. If you put him on the Denver Broncos right now, they wouldn't be doing as well as they are doing. He simply is not playing his he's not even playing his best football. He's not playing the way he the way he finished um the season before last. Um where where he uh, where I thought he played at a pretty high level the last six games or so. He has clearly regressed. Um the ball's not important for him is the ball coming out of his hands in a timely fashion. Um, important for him, he's got to give our receivers balls that they can't just catch, but they can run after a catch and make big plays. He is he's he's playing he's he's below his his trajectory as a Miami Dolphin. He's probably playing some of his worst football as a Miami Dolphin, um, which would lead me to believe that his future with the Dolphins is is bleak at this moment. Wow. Wow. All right. And I know JT has, I think, one more for you, JT. Yeah, just just a question. Going into the Cincinnati game, the an hour before the game, there were a lot of announcements. Byron Maxwell benched, Tony Lopet to start. You know, several guys that Gase basically felt weren't performing, and he put other guys in there. So as a former player, how do you feel about the coach doing that, and are you a fan of it? It's one thing. Uh, there's a lot of coaches that 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 feel like that, that that feel that way when you're playing bad, both in college and pro. Sometimes you, sometimes, especially at the professional level, a coach might get the sense that guys are just showing up. No one's playing with any sense of urgency. Even even your better players aren't playing with a sense of urgency. I'm sure there was. There's been times in the last couple of years where if we could have, we would have been Sue. Uh, guys, guys, guys that you need to play well just haven't been, and some of the, and, and the coach might feel that it. Uh, you really hear a lot of this. I I hear Nick Saban talk about this often about his team. You know, you, you have some guys that that just aren't playing the way that you know that they're capable of playing, and and unfortunately, sometimes these are some of your better players. It's a crappy place to be in, um, and of course, and, 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 and you know, you can't just go fire someone every week. But maybe, maybe um, benching someone could shake them up. You know, you got to admit it. This this doesn't just happen in uh, football. You know, this isn't just right. coaching 
in football. I mean, we see this in basketball, and we certainly see this in baseball. Sometimes a coach feels like it may benefit a player to, to, to sit down and watch the freaking game for a while. Mm-hmm. But this is all stuff that's associated with losing. True. True. And one uh, last quick question for me then, Jeff, is this, and I'll take you away from the Miami Dolphins for a second. Watch, uh, I'm a Giant fan, so I watch Odell all the time now. And my question to you is, as a player, do you want Odell Beckham on your team? Is he talented enough for you to be able to uh, ignore some of the selfish stuff that he's uh, pulling or do you rather not have the talent on the team and go for cohesion? It's a tough call. I like the kid, but no one likes distractions. And you certainly don't like the the, the, the senseless penalties, especially if you're a team struggling. He couldn't play for a lot of coaches. I, I'm not sure he could have played for Coach Hill, and he certainly couldn't play for Bill Belichick. But at the same time, at the same time, mm-hmm. coaches know where this guy stands. This guy's coming to play every week. This guy, this guy, this guy is playing every game like his last game. When this guy, right. if this guy was never to play another snap, he'd walk away from the game knowing he left nothing out there. You don't see, you know, me, me and Joe Green when he was coaching me he used to tell me. A lot, especially on defense, but a lot of the best players are just, they, 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 they got a chip on their shoulder. They always feel like they got something to prove, and they're angry. They wake up in the morning, and, and, and they're ready to compete. So I believe he will eventually, and just like his coach said, he's got a way to, he's got to find a way to channel his energy and not be a distraction uh, to the team and cost the team. Um, I believe some of some of which is a maturing process, but I I I I like to see him play, minus the penalties and and especially the unsportsmanlike conduct, you know, which which is a costly 15 yards. Um, I think he will clean up his game a little bit, but I, I like to see him play. Here's a guy that that uh, takes every play personally. Um, right. It's a, it's a, it's a shame. Um, you know, especially the, the one game late last year, I guess it was with the Panthers, um, in a right. game that they needed. But um, I like to see the guy play, <laughs> especially at a receiver. You know, um, he, he for, for those that ha- I, I see, I see a lot of that in Jarvis Landry. <laughs> um, I, 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 I see him and Jarvis Landry being pretty similar players. They, they show up to play. They bring on an enormous a lot of energy. I, I feel like Jarvis Landry is our best player right now. Um, I think Jarvis. I think I think Jarvis brings it with a little bit more class, though. A little bit he more, does. Uh, mature, these guys, these guys are competing, and um, I think coaches like to know who's who's laying it laying it on the line every play, who's coming up mm-hmm. to who, who's coming uh, to every game. Um, and taking it, and taking every play personal. So um, Jarvis Landry's, and we're winning the Super Bowl, uh, right? Um, I, I'm I'm with you there. So um, I think he will eventually clean up his game, um, uh, Beckham, and um, 
it 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 uh, uh, he'll go a much longer way for the for the for the Giants who who really need him and could really uh, do without the, the you know the penalties. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Jeff, thank you so much for your time once again. Uh, it's been a pleasure. You you're full of some great knowledge of the game, and we enjoy having you. Thank you so much. You got it, buddy. Talk Thanks, to you Jeff, soon. Folks, we will. Just some great, great stuff. Uh, Jeff, it's an older, obviously you heard some of it. It is an older interview. Some of it still plays out. And it's funny now as we look at the Miami Dolphins potentially moving Landry out of there. You heard Jeff talking about, you know, one of their best players, JT, talking about how if they had 53 of them, they can't believe I'd like to see them reunite them with uh, Odell personally. Can we work something out with that? Maybe, maybe not. Be good. <sighs> Boy, that wouldn't that piss JT off too? It's uh, you know that's what we should have named this show uh, because uh, we could talk about Jarvis possibly coming to the Giants. Although honestly, it's funny. I'm paying attention to some things going on in social media while listening to the interview and. Just talked about it. Just talked. Just got done talking about Jarvis Landry with somebody, and uh, my personal feelings. And I think JT pretty much uh, feels the same way. Heard it from a couple of people. Heard it from more than one source. Let's put it that way. Is that a Dallas scenario is something that could uh, eventually rear its ugly head? And uh, we'll see. Like I said, I, I like to see him on the Giants. I, I guess every team feels that. I don't know what to tell you, folks. I don't know what to tell you, folks in Miami. You heard uh, Jeff talking about some of what goes on, and uh, uh, you know, there's a guy that bring you some. Before we bring you more ha ha, before we bring you more ha ha, let's bring you more. Uh, you know, at the time, it was considered nuts. It was considered crazy. It was considered, oh my God, I could never picture doing it. We have all. Oh, let's go. Two years ago, this interview, Brian Walton, now obviously a long-time friend of the show, came on the show talking about being able to go in the water, sharks, no cage. I find this rather incredible, and one of our uplifting stories. We get into several stories along the way throughout the years now about being able to stretch what people think is possible and looking past that if you believe something's possible then just go and do it prove people wrong ryan walton every day goes out and is literally um swimming with the sharks for conservation he does a great job absolutely fantastic young man here in florida if you ever have the opportunity you're visiting in florida or you're listening here in the florida area go ahead you can find him on facebook ryan walton uh, scuba he is absolutely fantastic to take you to the best times of your life and right now let's play let's play about five minutes of mr walton hey ryan you're there with me brother 
Good evening, Jester. How are you? Better than most, not as good as some, and I am certainly nowhere near as good as you, sir. I mean, you are, before I ask you any questions, I, I have to at least let you know, I really appreciate you coming on the show tonight. I have met some interesting people in my life, sir, but what you do is uh, is very interesting and, and pretty much uh, I have to ask you. So you dive, and I'm assuming you do many kinds of dives, not just sharks, correct? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right, now you when you dive with sharks, I, I have this correct. You dive without a cage? Yeah, yeah, there's uh, no reason for a cage, especially uh, where we dive. Um, a lot of people dive in a cage when it comes to white sharks. Uh, white sharks are um, a little bit less predictable than others, maybe. Um, so that's the one shark that uh, people generally do dive in a cage uh, when they're around that animal. But otherwise, there's really no need uh, for us to be in a cage. And you have all your body parts, sir. Every one of them. That's remarkable. <laughs> that is remarkable. Uh, where do you uh, and you dive out of Florida, sir? Uh, yes. So we're in the Palm Beach area. I I don't have a problem calling it the shark diving cap. Jim Abernethy, a friend of mine, uh, that's actually where I dive out of. That's where I work. Uh, he was the first person ever to start diving um, outside of a cage with sharks. Uh, many years ago, and uh, it's really evolved since then. So I'm right here um, in his backyard, and we have so many species of sharks here. So that's why I don't have a problem calling this uh, Palm Beach County, Florida, the shark diving capital of the world. And the sharks there, I mean, are these magical sharks? or these These are just like regular, ordinary sharks that people have been told to be afraid of. Uh, the media, you know, uh, Shark Week, Jaws, yeah, there, there's those same sharks. Um, we dive with tigers, hammerheads, bull sharks, the same ones that these guys demonize, these guys meaning Shark Week, um, you know, Jaws, the movie. Uh, the, the media, when it comes to a bite on the beach in North Carolina, uh, those same sharks that they're trying to make uh, look like the bad guy, uh, we hang out with them. <laughs> That's uh, on pretty much a daily basis. Wow. Wow. Um, that, that is absolutely fascinating. And you actually reach out, touch, pet these guys. Uh, from what I was reading uh, on one of your uh, – you're on Facebook, and, and I was reading one of the things. It was you touching them and, and talking about how uh, they like affection and they have emotion. Absolutely. Uh, I believe that 110%. Um, what we do when we're touching them, so you never want to reach uh, when you're working with sharks, because if you reach, you never know where the next shark is. And quick movements um, could, you know, possibly get you bit. Shark diving is all about following rules. Um, the same way you walk into your friend's house, you know, and they have a dog. You don't just run in the house and, say, grab their, their little kid. The dog's going to react. Um, you, you give animals in all all places, their respect. So, what about now? What about the term uh, "shark attack"? I mean, where does that uh, come from then? 
Well, we need, we need to get rid of it. It's a way to sell. Uh, shark attack is something we don't want to use. Uh, it's a mistake. Uh, and that's it's pretty blatant at this point. So North Carolina is a good example. This past year we saw that North Carolina had six or eight bites um, in the course of like two weeks, if I'm not mistaken. Now, if you look at the facts, Correct. they were all by fishing piers, all by fishing piers. All right. Now, why are people swimming where people are fishing? All right. Now you have dirty water. So sharks feed in contrast. When there is a smaller shark <clears throat> working his way through the surf and your foot is there in the water and they smell this blood coming from the pier that people are fishing off of, they're allowed to chum off of, right? Now they go ahead and take a test bite. That's what's happening. That's, that's what you're reading about. That's what the media is calling an attack. And, and that's what's gotten sharks killed. This. Unbelievable. Unbelievable stuff there, folks, from Ryan. And it's true, it's getting sharks killed every day because people don't know the facts. And it, it really led to some interesting, interesting times uh, for myself because later on in another interview, I would go ahead talk about how I would never, ever, ever swim with sharks. And that came back to uh, bite me on the ass, if you will, uh, because I have now joined Mr. Walton in the water and done it myself. And I invite all of you. Uh, they are absolutely wonderful creatures, and it's not what Sharky tries to show you and sell you and sell the advertisers, I guess. They don't show the actual side. And the sad part of it is, is uh, you also learn, when you're out with Ryan, you learn not just about sharks, but what's going on in the water. Because if you think we're missing some of the important issues uh, that we can see as we walk around in our day-to-day lives, you can only imagine some of the issues that we're not Very educational, great young guy, Ryan Walton. Look him up on Facebook. It was uh, it was an incredible, incredible trip I had with him. And uh, Mrs. Jester has done it. Several of our friends have done it now. I invite you, uh, check it out. Check it out. No doubt. Moving along. And uh, <clears throat> we had to go ahead. We've got to get some of the humor. Uh, like, this show is really wrapped itself around. It's not just about the sports. It's not just about the stats. It's not just about fantasy sports. Not just about uplifting stories. Sometimes it's just about the funny stuff. It's about the earth-shattering kaboom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know something? Exactly. It can be anything at any given time. And what you don't expect sometimes is what you get out of an interview. You know, that's one of the fun parts of this, is that as you're doing an interview with somebody, you really don't know. You you, you tell them, okay, uh, you ask them, do you want the questions prior or not? Some do, some don't. But in the end, you don't know what it's like to interview somebody until you actually do it. I had the opportunity with JT, Joe and Cage, and a bunch of others, we had Larry Zabisco on uh, one of our podcasts, and 
this is part of it. This is just part of it because the rest, uh, we'll, we'll play the rest of it at another time. This is just some great stuff. If you're a moving target, he shoots. Lex Luger, uh, and in particular Sting, some of the stuff that he had to say, I'll let you be the judge. Enjoy. This next 28 minutes is gold. Absolute gold from Larry, the legend, my honor, it is my pleasure to welcome in the legend himself, Larry Zabisco. How are you tonight, sir? Well, I'm doing good. Can you hear me, buddy? <laughs> you can hear, can me, you okay? hear me now? Okay. Yeah, we hear you loud and clear. Okay, good, because I was talking for five minutes, and I didn't know if I could dial the right number, because it said you could listen, but I didn't know if I could get in. So I almost hung <laughs> up on you. No, no, no. That's why I, you know, that's why I had to stop with JT. I was like, listen, I've got a legend on the phone. I don't want him going anywhere. I, I want. I've been waiting, you know, since we got got the uh, everything set for you coming on the show. I, I have like been a kid at Christmas time, yeah, and today okay. is Christmas. Well, I'm glad it worked out good because I'm, I'm, I, I still don't know what a hell a hashtag is, so I don't know if I got it or not. But okay. <laughs> All right, I'm ready. What's up? <laughs> I'm with you on that one. I've had to learn. I, You know what? I had no idea myself, and I'm still learning, so don't feel bad. Uh, hey, I, you, you, know, you, know, you, you know what I did? This pissed me off so bad. <laughs> I refuse to grow up. I refuse. So for the last 10 years or whatever, I've been using these great Razor phones, the Motorola Razor flip phones. Because okay. I don't do computer stuff, and I'm not carrying a TV set. So I love the Razor phones. <laughs> but those things, I find out, are 2G, whatever a G is. So now you got to have a 3G phone or better. And I went to the AT&T store, and they got, like, these plastic cheap flip phones. They were, like, cheap. So I lucked out and found a Razor phone online that's a 3G. So oh, okay. um, I'm happy oh, now. You're moving up. I remember, yes, Larry, you know, I'm with you. Uh, You know, I remember when 2G meant you had two grand in your pocket. Yeah, what the (laughs) hell are languages talking nowadays? (laughs) Also on the line with us, Larry, I have my partner in all our podcasts, uh, Jason Townsend. He's been looking forward to speaking to you. We have Joey Cage, former MMA Fighter and now turned wrestler here in Florida. We've got Busy J, one of the writers for our website. We're going to go first. The first question is going to go to my partner, JT, who's been looking forward to speak to you. JT, go ahead. You've got Larry. Larry, how's it going? Really looking forward to this. Ah, everything's going good. I mean, uh, it is going good. Uh, I'm having a good old time. You know, I'm sitting back. I'm, I'm I'm glad I lived when I did. And I'm watching the world show. And I've never seen such a comical, absurd bunch of nonsense. And you see the world systems. You know, they're all parasitic systems, banking systems, religious systems, poly, you know, politics. And they're all crumbling under the weight of their own absurd complexity. It's insane. The world's losing its mind. So I'm having a great time watching the show. It's like watching the real-life Three Stooges. Oh, <laughs> there's a lot of that that goes on in the world these days. So I ah. have to ask you, 
I have to ask you this. Uh, since uh, Jester told me you were coming on, you know, I went back and was looking at some of your some of your work, some of your matches over the years, and two dates pop out to me. January 22nd, 2003, where you lost to current WWE SmackDown World Heavyweight Champion AJ Styles, and then seven days later in the rematch, you beat him. I'm going to ask you, what's it like to be in the ring against AJ Styles? Oh, God, you're talking. Let me go back to the time capsule. That was, um, yeah, that was interesting. You know, yeah, I think I think back in those days it had something to do with they wanted me to get involved as AJ's manager when he when he was starting out, you know, some little place in Georgia, and that was after uh, WCW. Oh, wow. So, but but anyway, I wound up having a match with the kid, and it was a hell of a match. I mean, it was it was a hell it was a it was a hell of a match. It got uh, it was good, you know, and AJ was. Young and green, but uh, I was so great it, it didn't matter. But uh, no, the match was really great. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you you mentioned pulling out the time capsule. Before we go to Joey Cage, let me ask you my first question, because I came in in your career. Here's where I'm going to date myself now for sure, folks. I came into Larry's career. You were a tag team. Your tag team partner was Tony Guria. Oh God, oh, yeah, Tony Guria. <laughs> and you were wrestling at Bergenfield High School in New Jersey back in about, geez, it had to be about seventy nine, eighty for WWF. And uh, that was uh, during Billy Graham, Ken Patera, Putsky, all them. Yeah. What? Now, let me ask you something, because it always seemed like you were the, you know, fun, happy-go-lucky, you know, they're having a good time wrestling kind of guy, and Tony Guerrilla seemed a little bit more serious. What was it What was it like uh, being his tag team partner? Well, it was, it was fun. I mean, you know, I am an easygoing guy, and I was one of the guys that kind of got along with everybody. And if someone was an asshole... I would just say, hey, how you doing? But then that's the last they'd see of me. You know, I'd just stay away from them. But, but most of the guys right. are pretty cool. And Tony, Tony was a cool guy. He might have given it more of a serious look, but, but but he was a good guy and a sharp guy. You know, I mean, I mean me and him traveled together, but it was good because I, I was never a drinker. I never went to the bars and got drunk and all that stuff. And right, neither, right. You know, neither was Tony and uh, – so you know, it worked out good, and um, it was, um, and, you know, it kind of helped me out because that's when I very, that's when I just got there, you know, into New York City, that whole Northeast area, and to to right. to get around and someone to ride with and you know, learn the territory and the, you know, it worked out good. Nice, nice. Next up, uh, Larry, we have Joey Cage. Like I said, I mentioned. Former MMA guy, now turned uh, Florida wrestler. He's on the line, been dying, dying to talk to you. Joey, go ahead. Larry, what's up, man? How are you? Good, Joe. How you doing, buddy? Good, good. No, I'm very, very, very excited. Uh, you know, I've been a fan of pro wrestling pretty much my whole life. Um, you know, I really, I was born in 88. I pretty much got into it probably right before the Attitude Era. Um, you know, in WWE, probably around like Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, that stuff. Uh, but one of the things that I did immediately when I became a fan was to watch a lot of the history uh, of, of the of the sport itself. 
you know, the, you know, the matches of, you know, Harley race and Buddy Rogers and a lot of guys, Oh yeah. Uh, you know, there were so many great talents and so many great matches that there were that my generation and the generation today, you know, aren't too aware of um, one match in particular uh, that stands out to me, or at least one feud rather uh, was your work with Bruno San Martino. I, you know, that, the stuff that, you know, the match that you guys had and everything with him, you know, being your mentor and all that stuff, that was amazing. And really, I think that, you know, a lot of the work that you guys did back in the day was so much different than today's product. I wanted to ask you, uh, what do you like or dislike about today's product? Well, Back then, I mean, it, it, it was boy, it was a different era. I, I wish I could take the fans back to 1980, and they could sit in the garden and feel the electricity, without any fireworks, without any flashing lights. Just a guy mm-hmm. walking out of the dressing room, you know, would blow the roof off the place, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it, it was really, I mean. You know, people believed, and, and they they were emotionally involved. I mean, they loved Bruno, and and they wanted to kill me. I mean, right. I got shot at, stabbed, <laughs> the car set on fire. I mean, it was no, riots every you. night. Yeah. And the, oh and the difference today, I mean, I hate to be critical, and I should probably keep my mouth shut, but... <laughs> Everything is the same. Every match, you're going to have two clotheslines. A guy, for some reason, stands in one corner, and the other guy in the other corner. And for some reason, he's going to run across the ring like a moron and into your foot. And then you'll fall on the floor standing there with your arms out, and he's going to run all the way across the ring, run all the way back. And for some reason, you're not going to move. You're going to catch him as he dives on your head. And it's just every match. It makes no sense to me. And everybody does the same thing. So I think that's why you see the fans. I mean, if you listen to the fans, I think they're starting to revolt. You know, it's, it's, um, they can't pretend anymore. I mean, I was watching the show. I was watching Raw the other night. And then they had some local guy, you know, he looked like nobody. And I heard the crowd start chanting, you know, let's go, Chopper, let's go, Chopper. And I didn't know who this kid was. And I I came in, and it was like almost the biggest reaction of the night. And I look at it, and I said, who the hell is this guy's name, Chopper? What the hell are the people chanting? And the whole crowd is chanting, let's go, Jobber, let's go, Jobber. And I I just just felt to myself. Jobber gets the biggest boom. Yeah, I just said to myself, you, you poor bastards. I mean, the guys are getting killed, and no one really cares. But they don't know how to do it right. And you know, everything's just, uh, I'm going to run across into your foot like a moron. You know, I, I don't know. Yeah, gotcha. you, you got Larry, me. Can I ask you, <laughs> Larry, let me ask you this. You know, Joey had mentioned uh, and touched on, uh, you know, Bruno San Martino. Which... You know, I'm trying to think of if I had the opportunity to wrestle my idol or be inducted into the Hall of Fame by my idol, which one was better for you, wrestling your idol or being inducted? Oh, you know what? They they were both a magic moment. 
Yeah. And I'll tell you a funny story because the uh, silly Hall of Fame thing, I, I went out with one thing on my mind, and I didn't write nothing down. And then after a couple minutes, for the first time ever, I looked into the crowd, and they were, the whole front rows were people I knew my whole life, you know, Dusty and Gene and Ennis and Arn. And, and I said, oh, there's so-and-so, there's so-and-so, there's so-and-so. And then I looked up, and I didn't remember a thing I said. I went into some – I couldn't remember what I said, and I went, what the hell did I just say? And the next thing I remember is I was walking off the stage – and Vince came running up and said, Larry, you were in the moment. That was great. And I had no <laughs> idea what the hell I said. I came from a different dimension. But then when I when I, I, I listened to it back, I went, my God, I did say that. I did say that. And it, and it begins to the reality of If you get into the reality of life, which is a dream, and I tried to give the secret of life away during that talk, kind of went over everybody's heads, but – <laughs> but 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 the dream I had and wanted it was just interesting with Bruno because you know when I crawled through his hedges that one day and he helped me into the business and we wound up pulling off the biggest angle of the day. I mean you know if we did that today and the emotions were like it was today with all the you know networks and pay per view. I mean it would it would be enormously huge. But Bruno was the guy at the beginning of my career, you know, my dream that I wanted to be like my hero. And then when I walked down to the Hall of Fame, who was inducting me? Bruno. And it was it was like an official ending to the dream where I walked into this rabbit hole in his hedges and he helped me open the door into the wrestling world. We pulled off the biggest thing ever. But then when I was done with my dream, and there was Bruno again, kind of like at the end, this time holding the door open, and I walked out. And that I, and I told that story. But, but it's true. It was just weird. That is fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. You gave me chills on that one. Uh, well, that, yeah, me I know. I mean, one, I mean the, 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 the things I said, you know, came from a different dimension and things I'm into, but I didn't remember a word I said. And even when I talked about the power of imagination, because that's, <laughs> the human animal is the only one with the unlimited power. We're all God. There's no such <laughs> thing as a sinner. It's all deception. <laughs> we, we all are. Uh, we, we're all our own prophets. Well, we're all a little piece of the whole. We're all, you know, correct. There's no such correct. yeah. And, Anyway, don't get me started. We'll have World War Three done by the time you get off no, the phone. No, yeah, let's get busy, Jay. Yeah, let's get busy, Jay, on in here. I know he's chomping at the bit to be able to ask you a question. Busy Jay, what do you have from good old Larry Zabisco joining us tonight? Larry, it's a pleasure speaking to you. You were always one of my favorite wrestlers growing up, and I well, remember thanks, some man. of your class- you. I remember some of your classic matches in AWA, NWA. WCW, you definitely, you're definitely truly a living legend, and thanks for blessing us with your time. Yeah, you know, back in those days, I mean, it, it was it's fun to think back of because uh, I was such a and uh, such an asshole, and it's one of the secrets I that I learned, you know, that was that was taught to me by guys like Bruno and Strongbow, and and not even in so much words, but just by watching. But when I watched the guys that got over and drew money. 
I realized one thing, that no matter what the character was, whether you were Bruno the strong guy or Chief J. Strongbow, who looked more like Cochise than Cochise did, even though he was Italian, <laughs> you know, people believe in your character. You know, forget the business. Right. If they believe in you, you got it made. And what I did was I was such an asshole that people believed it. They didn't care about the wrestling business. They just believed that in real life, this guy's an asshole. <laughs> and so that's why it was, you know, so easy to get heat. And I, I, I love that, you know, but it, but uh, they believed it. And the funny bit is, talking, you mentioned AJ Styles. When I was doing some TNA when they first came to Orlando here some years ago, or 10 years ago now, whatever it is, they were showing on ESPN Classics the AWA stuff. They were showing it like twice a day in the afternoon or something for like maybe a year or two. And all the guys who were growing up, AJ Styles and Chris Daniels and the Abyss and a couple others, James Storm and them, you know, that they were the young TNA guys starting. They were too young to see me in my prime in the AWA days and some other places. And they would run up to me after watching the ESPN Classic reruns and AJ in them. They would look horrified. And they go, how could you do that? And I said, do what? And AJ in them, they, you, you, you were such an asshole. How could you do that on TV? And it, was, it was like, well, that's the job, dummy. <laughs> it's fun. There's no more good assholes. <laughs> yeah. It's true. It's true. Let me ask you, you know, before we get back to the panel, I, I want to ask you, you know, talking about the guys from the back, like you were talking about, Chief J. Strongbow, maybe a, uh, you know, Ivan Putsky, Peter Maivia, uh oh, these kind of guys back then. <laughs> there almost wasn't a rock. <laughs> <laughs> you know, these kind of guys here, um, back then, who was it that you enjoyed working in the ring with they were just a good worker they they handled their craft properly they were professional in the ring oh god you know i mean if i've been asked that question a bunch but but back in those days everybody was a you know a a professional and (laughs) and because i was trained the way i was and I, i hate to blow smoke up my butt but, but I had an education that really no one else got because I was Bruno's protege and that carried, mm-hmm. which I didn't realize at the time because I was, you know, a kid, but that carried a lot of politics and and mm-hmm. guys like Strongbow and Monsoon and a bunch of them, you know, all the, they would take me under their wing and teach me stuff and tell me stuff and be nice to me where they wouldn't do that to other young guys because they protected their jobs. But they would all come right. to me because it was getting points with Bruno. It was like Brian, because I was Bruno's guy. <laughs> if everybody was nice to me, but that's how powerful Bruno was, not just in terms of drawing money, but in terms of politics in the office. What Bruno said, Vince McMahon Sr. would do. Mm-hmm. End of story. But, uh, you know, so I had an education, you know, that really not a lot of guys had. I was just so good at what I what I did that even if the guy stunk, I could have the crowd going nuts. <laughs> so 
I had basically a good, easy time with it, with everybody. It just depends how they were. If I worked with Bob Bass, then we could have a good wrestling match. You know, if I worked with one of the Valiant Brothers, you know, you can forget that. You know, it was a different kind of match. But, right, uh, right. you know, it, kind of, it, it depended on the guy, you know. You'd have a different match. You know, if you wrestled Putsky, he had the strong man, you know, kind of match. So, but, you know. So I, I I really kind of enjoyed you know working with everybody. I, I worked with you know guys like you know from Bach Winkles and Harleys and and then even the, the the last generation that you know had a clue it was the generation of like you know Shawn Michaels and Triple H and Kurt Henning and Scott Hall and then because that generation had a chance to work with guys like me and Arn and Flair and the Dusty and you know the guys that knew but. And then after that generation, it kind of started going away. Let me, uh, before I pass you off to JT, uh, let me just wrap that up with the difference between Vince Sr. and Vince mm. Jr. What do you see? What's the, what's the difference between working for the two? Well, I, I'm trying Well, you know what? It's kind of interesting. There's at the bottom heart of both of them, they're both basically the same kind of guy. They're 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 a promoter's promoter. I mean, Vince, you know, Junior, you know, has got to be the greatest promoter ever. I mean, what he wound up with, you know, in the early '80s, the WWF, you know, to what it is today, is outrageous. I mean, you know, his dad would be proud of him. And, and Vince Senior was a very smooth character, like in the old movies. He'd always have like four or five quarters in his hand. He'd be jingling with the cashmere coat, and he was a real smooth operator. And uh, but he was kind of quiet tone, and he would keep his emotions low. The old man, like if some guy ran up to Vince Senior and said, "Hey, there was a good house, and Arnold only gave me a hundred dollars, and I should have made two hundred dollars." You know, then Vince Senior would say to the guy, "Oh, that damn Arnold!" Uh, and Vince would reach in his pocket and give the guy fifty bucks or a hundred bucks, and the guy would go, "Oh, mm-hmm. thanks, Vince. Well, you're a great guy." You know, Vince would go, oh, "Okay, yeah, take it easy. Good job, buddy." And then Vince would go into the office and say, "Hey, Arnold, fire that guy." You know, and then boom. <laughs> so, <clears throat> but then you know, because he didn't want any hassles, but that's how Vince would Senior would handle real smooth and. <laughs> And, and stuff, you know, where Vince, you know, his kid, he's a little more emotional, you know. And uh, and uh, Vince is a character. I mean, he's one of the boys. He's he's outrageous. I and mean, you can't help but love him if you're in the business. I mean, I, I, I just heard the other day the poor guy blew out his quad or something, squatting. Yeah. But he's squatting <laughs> 500 pounds. He's seventy years old. <laughs> That's, That's the thing. But you know, I mean, he's a he's that outrageous kind of guy. And in uh, you know, in terms of the wrestling business and what needed to be done to get it this huge in this world, yeah, he did. He was outrageous. There should be a statue of him next to Bruno and Andre someday. No, I heard that the other day. He's squatting with five hundred pounds. What is he thinking? But that's how he is. I mean, he's a, he's a you know, he's tenacious. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Larry, you know what? JT again. I want to take you back 25 years. WCW, Wrestle War, 1991. 
you were in a four-on-four match with you teamed with Barry Windham, one of my favorites, yourself, Ric Flair, and Sid Vicious versus oh, Brian Pillman versus Brian Pillman, the Steiner brothers, and Sting. You know, there's a few Hall of Famers in there. What can you tell us about some of those guys and working with them? Well, I'm trying to put – that's kind of the time in my life when I was starting to get ready to get out of the ring because the crew that was coming along, plus the politics of the day, you know, they were trying to get rid of the guys who were getting 40 years old and push new guys, which ain't a bad idea. You got to, you know. You know, that that's what they'll be doing now, you know, with the WWE and NXT. They're you know, making new stars. So, mm-hmm. yeah, but I remember that match because I, I remember Sid Vicious was so t- Was that in a cage or something? Uh, it was War Games. War Games match. Four on four. Was, was, I, think, uh, was, I think it was in a cage. It was. So cage match. Yeah, I remember something about Sid Vicious tried to pick Pillman up. To do something, but the cage was low, and he when he picked him up, he ran Pillman's head into the top of the cage because <laughs> he was so because he was so damn tall. But yeah, I mean it, it it was a classic, you know, group of guys, and they're all insane. But but at that time, I, mean, I was just keeping it low because with the way the politics were going, I was getting ready to get out, and then I wound up with a broadcast job that I never even planned on. That's another story. Right. And when you were in that match, though, you look at someone like Sting, you know, did you, obviously already a polished guy at that point, but did you, did you know then by watching someone like Sting that he was just in for such a, such a huge career? No, I thought he was the luckiest man in the world. <laughs> Not just him. Wow. I mean, but the, well, I mean, nothing against Steve. He's a good guy, but Unlike guys like me and Arn and Flair and some other guys, Sting came along at, at a time in a generation where the promotion and the guys went, went way overboard with this surrealistic look. And that's a nice way of saying is everybody was so steroided up and into bodybuilding that no one cared about being a worker. Sting didn't have a clue what he was doing in the ring. Lex Luger was the worst narcissist of all. He was more worried about his biceps than the business. All he did, you know, three clotheslines and a torture rack, and, you know, everything looked so bad because he didn't want to hurt his workout the next day. I mean, these guys were guys that – they were a, a group that came in that, that didn't love the business. They were, you know, steroided up bodybuilders and not wrestlers. And for some reason, some company was giving them a lot of money for not knowing anything. The only reason guys like you know, Sting and the Steiners and Lex Luger and Sid Vicious and that generation made it was because they were working with me and Arn and Flair and some other guys that knew what the hell they were doing. I used to get in a match with you know and with Luger and. Say something, nothing. Say something, nothing. Say something, you know, tag out. And he'd get back in. I'd sting, sting would grab it. And I'd, I'd look at Alexa and say, you couldn't do that, you dumb shit. <laughs> I mean, they, didn't, they couldn't put their, they, they couldn't tie their boots. But they're making a lot of money and didn't know why. You know, and I'm thinking, going, these guys don't know how lucky they are. <laughs> 
You know, that is great. I mean, Sting. I mean, you know, talk about a horrible interview. We had to, we had to, we had to dress him like the, 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 you know, the Batman or whatever the hell, the Crow, drop him from the ceiling for a year, and not let him say a word to get one match out of him. <laughs> so, so I think he could have benefited from a. I am, um, gotta tell you, I am just sitting here dying, dying, and he just goes on. You could pick pretty much anybody, and he really, as you can see, does not hold back, folks. Uh, great guy, great times, funny times. You get the idea. Stats, humor, and more, folks. Uh, and that's what it really is all about here. Hope you're enjoying the show. A little something different. We go back to a little bit more of the uh, routine. Next week, actually, it's a little bit more because it is going to be a two-hour show as it's going to be baseball heavy next week. You know, we're going to talk NBA, we'll talk NHL, we'll talk NFL, but we will be talking about what Jay's doing over there in the Cactus League, what I'm doing over here in the Grapefruit League, and more next week, two hours Big for you baseball people, we'll be talking some of the, what did we see? I have somebody I saw yesterday, and this was uh, yesterday, I saw the Yankees and the Braves yesterday. A couple of interesting notes before I get to the Yankee report, and I'll be doing that next week. One of the more interesting things that I, I saw is uh, some tendencies of players and what it led to in that game. Can't wait to give you everything that I'm seeing here in the Grapefruit League, JT and Tate, I'm telling you, 10 games, seven days to bring you guys everything that they possibly can that you should know getting ready for your, even just your baseball seasons for you fans out there and also for you fantasy people. What are we seeing? Who to keep an eye on? You're not going to want to miss that if you are a baseball fan. Now, one of the things that we are also happy to announce is I've mentioned to you we're going to start adding more and more writers now. You know, the podcast is doing well, and thank you all. We love you for it. Thank you so much, JT. I I know I could speak for him on that one. So grateful. Thank you all. But now – Want to go ahead, got the, got the podcast part down. Want to bring more of the website. Want to start bringing more and more writers, more and more articles, bringing more content to all of you. So, and it's my pleasure to say, if you've noticed this, Tom, we've added a writer. Jordan Swafford will be talking to him next week. Looking forward to that. He'll be in. Go look at his pieces. He's starting with baseball coverage. He's going ahead division by division, little by little, going to break it down for you folks out there. And, again, it's for whether you're a baseball fan or a fantasy fan. He breaks it down completely so that both can enjoy, basically, baseball fans stay tuned to all things fantasy jester big month ahead we've got some great stuff planned for you as we continue to move on though and in this show 
bring you some of the people that didn't make it because I've only got two hours. Jenna Hurt, young lady bringing skateboarding to young girls around the world in countries where women don't exactly have the same rights here, folks. Believe it or not, it's not like this everywhere. She's been a pioneer bringing some fun sports to the young girls and building the parks with her own bare hands. Uh, Fantastic young lady. Go back, listen to some of the other shows on Blog Talk Radio that we have. Go look at the list of guests also on iTunes and other places. Our platform is grown, and we'll be sharing with that with you next week as we get JT back in here. We'll be graced with Tate next week. Looking forward to a big show. Now, as one of the interviews that are making the show tonight expands what you think could ever be possible. That's the kind of stories I like to bring besides the stats, besides the humor, something uplifting, something that helps the human spirit grow. Aikens was on the show, did an article, it's on the website, and was on the show, and I'm going to play the full interview because it deserves the full amount of time. 25,000 feet from a plane, no parachute. Incredible. Had the opportunity to talk to Lou. Uh, Stuff that, uh, things like what he's done, uh, Felix Baumgartner, uh, guys like that have fascinated me. And it was my, uh, I was like a kid in a candy store on this one because it, it really was something that when I saw the video, I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's insane. And then have the opportunity to talk to the guy. Obviously, it's just uh, the fun part of what I do, honestly, folks. And uh, I hope you enjoy this. Let's go ahead. Luke Aikens, folks. Heaven sent. Watch the video on YouTube after this interview. Amazing. Just as amazing as Ryan Walton diving with sharks no cage. I I find this to be absolutely incredible. And I'm a fan of all these people, uh, such as Luke Aikens, our guest that's about to come on. 25,000 feet without a parachute, folks. Guys like Felix Baumgartner, I want to talk to Luke about him as well. While I've got him here, I might as well ask. I, I, I literally, I can't keep this man on long enough. I got to be honest with you because I, I've been dying to talk with him. So let's go ahead. Let's get JT and let's get Luke in here. JT first. JT, you back with us? Oh, yeah, right here. All right, and right now, folks, I'm getting ready to bring in the man who it's the most incredible inspiration of what you can do against what people believe possible. It is our honor and our privilege to have our next guest, Luke Akins, on. Luke, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. Thanks. How's going, Absolutely Luke? amazing. Uh, absolutely amazing. Uh, it was called Heaven Sent, correct, Luke? Yeah, that was the, the name of the TV show. It was called Heaven Sent. That was the broadcast, and uh, just a clever name that they came up with to uh, 
send you down from the sky without a parachute. <laughs> yeah, heaven sent right to our show, literally. And, uh, boy, let me tell you, you know, I heard the story, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, when you were first presented with this, you weren't crazy about that? Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, more than that, I actually turned it down. I, I laughed out loud, and I said, uh, thanks, but no thanks. I got a wife and a son and a life, and I enjoy it, and uh, I don't really see how it can be done, uh, especially the way that they were talking about it. And I told them I'd help them figure it out. I'd love to be part of the team that helps somebody do it, but I'm not your guy. That was what I said when they first called me up with it. <laughs> how, 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 how different – how different was it when they first came to you? How different was it from what you ended up with and what you had to actually do to make it successful? Well, the idea was the same. When, when these guys present to me, Chris Talley calls me up from Precision Food Works and says, hey, I got this idea. I want you to jump without a parachute. We're going to land on this <laughs> giant slide, this giant slide, like 800, 900-foot tall slide, and it's going to slowly <laughs> come out. And uh, I kind of laughed. A, a guy, Jeb Corliss, another skydiver, wingsuiter guy, has been talking about that for years with the wingsuit. Uh, I just couldn't figure out how you could test it, how you could do it. Um, literally, I said, no thanks. I went in the house and told my wife. We both laughed about it. She's an experienced jumper. And then about roughly two weeks go by, I kept waking up at night thinking about, man, if someone said, Luke, you have to do this gun to your head, how could you do it? Is there a way you could make this thing? So it's not just a, a coin toss or a leap of faith. Can you test it? Can you methodically prove it out like a flight test program? And I came up with Correct. the net idea and air to decelerate me, and uh, we started going from there. Now, uh, was it a gradual progression you just kept practicing, and it was a gradual progression? Did you start, say, at you know, 5,000 feet or 10,000 feet? Uh, how, how did you get to the point of going, okay, I can do it from 25 and not feel it, uh, not have any problems? Um, I only wanted to do it one time. I mean, realistically, if you jump from 1,200 feet or higher, you're going the same speed. It doesn't matter if you jump from as high as Felix did or Alan okay. Eustace. If you jump from the right. stratosphere, by the time you get down to the atmosphere, down to lower altitudes, your terminal velocity is about 120 miles an hour. So it really doesn't matter how high you jump. Uh, and I thought, you know what I mean? If I'm going to do this thing, I want to do it once. So we dropped right. a bunch of dummies into it, dummy weights from a helicopter, oh. and we tested the G-forces that they hit into it. Um, and then I did a ton. I did about 340 practice jumps, getting ready for it, opening my parachute super low. And then I did 83 jumps in a row, opening my parachute at well below 1,000 feet, right over the top of this 50 by, excuse me, 100 by 100 target. So wow. in, at going 120 miles an hour at 500 feet, you know exactly where you're going to hit. So we did that 82, excuse me, 82 times in a row before we did it for real. So there was no guesswork. I don't know anything anybody can do 82 times in a row. Uh, <laughs> I don't care what it is. Uh, so I felt like it was 100%. It was, there was no question on if this was going to work or not. JT, you want to get one? I, I have my – yeah, I could yeah, be no, asking I'm, a bunch of questions. Let me let JT uh, – Luke, this is my co-host, JT. I'm going to let him ask you a question, but I'm sorry. I'm going to hog a lot of the time with you uh, that we're fortunate to have. So, go ahead, JT, get in there before I go at it again. Exactly. And, and Luke, awesome to have you on. And don't worry, I'm used to him hogging the time, so I'm I'm well-equipped to handle this. So, actually, I want to ask you, um, I've done some reading on you, and I read somewhere you've done some stunt work with uh, movies like Iron Man 3. 
Yeah, I uh, I was uh, in Iron Man three. I'm the last guy that gets rescued right before he uh, when the Air Force One blows up and Iron Man flies around and grabs us all. We did that real okay. fun. Uh, we had hidden rigs underneath our suits, uh, underneath like a business suit. I had a hidden parachutes on, and there was a whole team of thirteen of us. And actually, I went to after I had came up with how to do this thing. I went to the guys that the stuntmen from that movie, and I said, "Hey guys." This is what I'd like to do. Is it possible? And they uh, they made the idea practical. You know, they're they Jim Churchman and Jeff Haberstadt. This is what they do, and they made it so that I could do this thing safely. See, that's, that's one of Pike's probably my favorite scene in the movie too. So I I can picture exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, so I did. I, I was in Iron Man uh, three, and then I did Godzilla, the Godzilla with uh, Brian Cranston, where they're attacking the city and stuff. Uh, okay. Where they the Marines the Marines skydive into San Francisco. Uh, I was one of the jumpers in that scene, and then in Fast and Furious Seven, uh, I got to film the cars flying out of the C-130, which was super cool. Uh, in free fall next to a '67 Camaro was pretty fun. <laughs> nice. Living the life there. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. Uh, you know, I want to go ahead. Back, because uh, I, I have been, I, I've had a mini obsession. You got to understand, I've watched your jump at least three dozen times, Luke, at least. And uh, <laughs> I know I, I've sat there, and I said, okay, at 16,000 feet, I, I saw you were literally, your heart was almost traveling as fast as, as, uh, as you were. You're going 150 miles an hour, and your heart rate was 148, the gauge said. And then at 15,000, how you have to hand off the oxygen mask. But I, I saw at 5,000 feet when you, now you're being left by yourself, there was one person who stayed just a little bit longer. Who was that person? Yeah, so I had three guys jump out with me. They're all three my really good friends. Uh, one, my cousin Andy Farrington. Uh, he was the guy I handed the oxygen system to. Um, and then I had... Uh, Jeff Provenzano, another buddy, a New Yorker there. Uh, he was out there jumping with me. And then John DeVore was filming, and he stayed with me uh, until roughly about 2,500 feet, which is about as low as we normally open our parachutes. Uh, and then and he stayed with me just for filming, and he said it was really weird opening this parachute and me just going. Uh, because when I jumped out, there was no harness. I didn't have a harness on. I didn't have a parachute. There was no way that it's not like the movies where you could grab onto somebody and they could open their parachute and you could land. So from the moment I left the plane until the end, it was going to be the same outcome, but it was just something about having your buddies with you that made it feel a lot more uh, like a normal skydive up until they started opening. And then you could see me start concentrating more and more as I get closer to the net. Yeah, and that was, uh, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that. Uh, uh, I, I watched it, and uh, you're by yourself, and then I, I was like, wow, that one guy's just staying with him. I wonder how far he can go before he's actually doing it with him. Um, but you had <laughs> mentioned the parachute. You had mentioned the parachute, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but the – was there a problem they had wanted you to have an emergency shoot on anyway and you were taking it off and they were giving you a problem saying that this whole thing might be canceled if you don't wear it? Is that, again, is that an accurate story? 
So it, it's really accurate. It sounds like a bunch of drama made up. What happened was I went out and got all the permissions I needed to legally do this. There's the governing body for aviation in the United States is the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. I went through them from the very beginning. Um, they were okay with it. They had to sign off on some stuff, make sure I wasn't going to drop the oxygen bottle on anybody, make sure that the people that were there were far enough back, you know, a bunch of safety stuff. Um, the United States Parachute Association also governs skydiving in the U.S., which I'm on the board of directors of, and they have a rule that says you have to wear two parachutes and you have to open them by this altitude. Uh, but since I wasn't wearing any parachutes, uh, mm-hmm. I decided that I didn't, wasn't really part of the organization during that jump because – to do a skydive, you have to wear a parachute. So I kind of was in the gray area on the rules there. But the Screen Actors Guild, which provides my health insurance from doing work on movies and stuff, you get a pretty good deal on, uh, on your health insurance and some benefits. And they've been really good to me through the years. But some, I had two guys, rem, not removed, but I didn't follow through. I had two guys I disagreed with on the, some training that they wanted me to do. And I said it wasn't impractical and it was actually hurting what I was doing. And mm-hmm. I believe I believe that one of those two guys turned it into the union and said this isn't safe and that I don't know what I'm doing and that I'm going to get killed. And so all of the stuntmen that worked on it, the stunt riggers, the people responsible for my safety, and myself mm-hmm. included, are all part of that union. Well, they put a stop work order on us saying that you can't do this because wow. it's breaking our rules. And so it was really just a, a union thing. And it put me in jeopardy of losing my my health insurance. Now, there's no insurance that I can get to jump out of an airplane without a parachute, right? <laughs> it's not like, right. Exactly. It, it, I mean, no one's gonna, no one's gonna give you that insurance. So, uh, it, it was just my personal health insurance, my wife and my son, and the mm-hmm. union. We fought them back and forth, and then they said, if you wear a parachute, it's okay. But if you wear a parachute on your back, the thing's about six inches thick at your lower back, and it thins out near your head. So I was really, really worried, and my wife was, if I landed in this net going 120 miles an hour, what's that going to do? Is it going to hyperextend my back? I mean, am I going to hit this net and be mm. fine and then be paralyzed from it? We had never practiced. We had right. any of the research for it. But it was the only way that I could get this thing to go. So I said, okay, I'll wear it. And then the whole night before, I was really stressing about it. I didn't want to wear it. My wife and I talked, and the show starts. My wife says to the camera live on TV that she's, I think she said she's effing pissed uh, that people who don't know what they're doing are stepping in and they're putting my, my health in jeopardy. And then I happen to say the same thing on the live show. At that point, I guess the union pulls out of the show. The mm-hmm. union pulled out, so it's a non-union job, but they're not going after us. They, we can stay part of the union. It's a non-union job, but I don't know any of that happened. My wife kept those guys away from me because earlier in the day, uh, my stunt crew, my wife, and myself, my stunt coordinator, my wife, and myself had a talk. And mm-hmm. he, they said, no one can tell you how to do this thing. I mean, no one's going to do this but you, and you, you, know, you do what you think is right. We talked about it. Uh, I was going to take it off at that point, no matter what, because that was the safe way to do. It's a yeah. practice. So I wore it to get in the plane. Apparently, I could have taken it off before I got in the plane, but my wife told those guys they have to stay out of my head. They can't be running up to me back and forth. You know, literally in 20 minutes, I'm going to put my life at risk, and I can't have that going back and forth in my head. So we just stuck with our plan. Yeah, we stuck with our plan all along. So when you see me taking it off in the airplane, and then on the live show, they say they just informed him he can take it off. That's a little bit of BS. 
that part is because <laughs> they they saw me taking it off and there's nothing that they could do about it. So uh, that that's the deal behind that whole story. So actually, Luke informed them that Luke was taking it off. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. That's pretty much yeah, uh, what we did, and that was. I believe it, it was the when right you're move. doing something. Yeah, no, no doubt. When you're doing something that it's your life in your hands, I, I really don't think many people should have that okay. That's and and I am a big believer in guys and professionals that are taking whatever you want to call them, calculated risks. I don't care in any sport, anything you want. If you're only putting yourself at risk, if you're a mountain climber and you want to free climb some crazy thing that to me seems like you're going to die doing it, as long as you're not going to hurt somebody else, and it's not going to cost a bunch of people anything else. I'm, I think everybody should be able to do what they want. If you're going to hurt somebody, that's a totally different story, and I have a problem with it. But to exactly. each their own other than that. Completely couldn't agree with you anymore, anymore. Uh, one last thing about this, uh, this particular jump, and then I want to ask you one more question besides this. We have uh, uh, at the end the, the nets being lowered. You did the, uh, and for those of you who haven't seen it, I have the video posted and I'll, I'll go ahead and I'm going to make sure I tweet it again tomorrow, folks, for everybody. But at the last second, Luke has to go ahead, flip onto his back, obviously for safety precautions for the, so that your back doesn't snap. And uh, he's being lowered down and the net's being lowered down. And then all of a sudden, Luke, I, I see you look over. And you start rolling back and forth like a madman, kind of all happy and kicking your legs and arms. Was that a little signal to your crew, and in particular your wife who was running up at that point? Was that a little signal that, hey, I'm okay, look, everything's working kind of thing? Yeah. Or was I mean, that just I exciting? Really think it, I, <laughs> I didn't think it through. I was just so jacked up. And, you know, and I waved and kicked my feet a little bit, and I was slowing my hands around, and I uh, – and then I stopped for a second after that, and I took a couple deep breaths. And I worked with a really cool sports psychiatrist, a guy that works with the Seattle Seahawks and some Olympians, Michael Gervais. He's the, some sports shrink guy. He really, we worked on a lot of stuff. And he said, after this is over, you want to make sure to take a moment. Nobody else in the world will ever experience what you did right then. Take a minute. So right after I kicked, I kind of leaned my head back. I took a couple deep breaths, and it was actually mm-hmm. a little emotional. <laughs> uh, I, I was like, holy shit crap, look what I just did. Uh, and that was a really cool moment. But the kicking and screaming was totally uncontrollable, just excitement. Uh, it must have taken you hours, if not days, to come down from the adrenaline rush of that. Yeah, I mean, when I incredible. got home when I got home from a little a wild media tour, you know, the morning shows, the whole bit, traveled around, and we watched it about a week and a half later. I watched it on TV. We recorded it, you know. And I tell you what, I was nervous watching myself. <laughs> I knew I was a kid, but I was nervous watching it. <laughs> uh, and you notice I didn't hit I didn't hit the exact center. I was about twenty five feet from the center and about twenty five feet yes. from the edge. Um, yes. I could have I could have slid to the right. I knew exactly where I was gonna hit, but I had a little GPS in my ear that was telling me my ground speed, which meant it said it was zero, so I wasn't moving at all. And if I tried to slide to the right a little bit and then stop again, I may have had a little lateral movement. So I knew I was in the net. I knew from my light system exactly where I was going to hit. So I knew I was right. safe, and I rolled. I decided, hey, 
in a, in a split second, all stuff goes through your mind. I'm going to stay right where I am. I'm in the safe sweet, not exactly in the center, but I'm in the safe, the edge of the sweet spot. Uh, I just rolled over and raced for impact. Knew you had it nailed. No sense. No sense getting technical about it. I've got it nailed. I'm making it. I'm flipping now, kind of thing. I tell you what, and, though, uh, it still bothers. It still bothers me that I wasn't exactly in the center. By the way, I saw an interview where you said you the one thing you'd do it again. You were asked if you'd do it again simply to get it direct center next time. I saw that. Yeah, that, that was great. That would be about it. Well, I, I'm going to ask you one question. I have no plans about... to do that again. <laughs> I'm going to ask you one question about Felix in, in a second, but JT has one last question for you. JT, go ahead. Luke, uh, I've done in, in some more of my research and in, in learning about you. I read somewhere that you've done some training for like the U.S. Navy SEALs or some of the military organizations. Can you tell us anything about that? Uh, I, I don't know who I work with. I just work with some. Uh, some top-tier individuals and help them try to stay safe so they can keep us safe. Nothing wrong nice. with that. Nice. All righty. Uh, you know, I, I've mentioned uh, Felix Baumgartner, and that was the uh, jumper that you had mentioned before as well. Uh, all right, just a couple quick questions on that. One, yeah. I had heard that you were the backup person for that jump. Is that accurate? Uh, there was really no backup for that jump. I worked on that jump for three and a half years. Uh, it was Felix's project. Um, the owner of Red Bull, Dietrich Mateschitz, Felix, he's very loyal to Felix. Uh, and he said if Felix wasn't going to do it, nobody was going to do it, which I was sort of bummed about. But I, uh, So I did all the training jumps on it, about 220 jumps, uh, designing his equipment, getting everything ready to go, the comm system. And then I helped train Felix for the jump. So I worked hand-in-hand with Felix and the NASA guys and everybody for about three and a half years on that project. So, uh, and at 4,500 feet, uh, he gets to the point at 4,500 feet, there's a call saying Luke made the call to drop smoke. Is that you? Yes, that would be me. How many miles? He had had smoke. Uh, the smoke was because he's landing out in the middle of nowhere out there in the edge of New Mexico and Texas there. There are no trees. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to tell which way the wind's blowing on the ground. And with a parachute, it's like an airplane. You want to land it into the wind, you land a lot slower going across the ground. So he can't tell. So I had people strategically placed all over the countryside out there, and everyone had little smoke grenades, and they would all pop them on my cue, and then he would see little smoke puffs coming up and he'd be able to tell which way the wind was blowing that's what that was for so he could land a lot nicer he didn't want to fall down in front of the world on live tv (laughs) yeah it was interesting because uh during the call and as he's coming down uh they're trying to tell him it seemed like that the winds are out of the east or somebody was trying to tell him the winds are out of the east winds are out of the east and he's like the winds are out of everywhere it seems like and uh like i said at 4500 go ahead yeah, and at 4,500, I said to pop the smoke. And, like, yeah. realistically, I mean, at that point, uh, he's alive. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to make it at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all about being pretty for TV at that point. <laughs> uh, last one on that. From from the moment he jumped and from the point he jumped, 
and you may or may not know the answer to this. How many miles has the Earth spun by the time he falls? Oh, man, I have no idea. I wasn't smart around that project. Did he jump 10 miles before the actual land? How far, how far was he before the actual landing spot? In other words, he wasn't dropping right on top of the spot. You have to account for the uh, rotation of the earth, no? Or no, you don't. No, not, no, not at all. Point. Like, he was high, but we're, it's not like he's orbiting the earth. He stays over roughly where he was. Just, just riding the wind is the only thing that moved him where he was. Interesting. Once you're inside that, if you're inside that certain level, you know, it's rotating, the air is moving with the earth and all that stuff, spinning at the same time. Interesting. Okay. Did not know that part. I, I That was just something that was bugging me. Great. Great. Luke, thanks so much. You, uh, like I said, you have stretched people's imagination. You've been an inspiration to what you can do. You can have people tell you that it's not possible. And if you find a way, if you take a look at something and you believe in your heart that you can work towards finding a way to make it possible you can literally fall from the sky without a parachute. But let me ask you one last question, Luke. Are you shark diving without a cage? No, uh, not doing that. Not doing it, huh? I've no, All right. Uh-uh. When I, when, I jump with the, uh, when I jump out, I have control over everything going on. With that shark, I'm in daring control. I don't think I'm, <laughs> I don't think I'm, giving, I don't think I'm giving that up. Yeah, no, no, I can promise you I'm not doing it. Folks, this is Luke Aikens, absolutely amazing, amazing gentleman and a great person, too. Uh, if you haven't had the chance, go on YouTube, go on the site. Heaven Sent is the name of it. Luke, thanks so much for gracing us with your presence tonight and joining us. Have a great night, sir. All right. Thank you guys for having me. A pleasure. Take care. Great stuff. Great stuff. And it was because of that interview uh, that I ended up being responsible to uh, Mr. Walton uh, for pointing out that you shouldn't dive with sharks, and I wouldn't because I'm scared, that I ended up having to. So um, great interview with Luke. I hope you all enjoyed it. Folks, this is what we bring each and every week. Next week, a lot of baseball, a lot of baseball. Don't forget. JT, what's up, JT? And Joe Jr. JT and Joe Jr., where are y'all at? Why are y'all not here right now? Why are y'all not supporting the Jags right now? They should be here right here with my Jags. Practice right now. (laughs) (laughs) JT is out in Arizona. We know where he is. Uh, Joe Jr.? That's right, folks. Fantasy Jester, this has been the Fantasy Jester Show. In case you missed it, something we had. I hope you enjoyed. Catch us next week. I am Jester. And out. Uh,